Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Kirsten Beverly Waters, author of The Struggle Guru, which is now out in bookstores everywhere. And I look forward to talking about your story and the book. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, I love your uh, listing of your occupation. Yoga medicine teacher, fitness coach, public speaker, and author. What a nice blend there. Yeah. But, uh, uh, what is yoga medicine? Oh, so yoga medicine actually is an organization. So Tiffany Cruikshank, who originally worked for Nike, is the founder of yoga medicine. So I studied under Tiffany for my, my teacher training and continue to study with Tiffany and her teacher, her core group of teachers. So really the purpose of yoga medicine is to be a bridge between the medical community and the patient. So be able to advocate, understand on a deeper anatomical, physiological level, the human body, and be able to offer more support to physical therapists, physicians, occupational therapists, and even mental health uh, counselors as well. So it brings a little little bit more of the, the medical side. She is an acupuncturist, Chinese medicine, studied sports medicine focus. She's got it all. <laughs> Um, so I can imagine you teaching a class or something. Or we're familiar with going to a yoga session. And then how do you uh, cross that bridge? Or what, what other things do you do with your students? Well, you know, it depends. If I'm teaching in just a, a general vinyasa class, you know, I focus based on the community. What is it that the community needs? I often attract a lot of triathletes because I'm an endurance athlete myself. So um, I tend to base it on the seasons that they tend to be in. So when we're in a pre-conditioning season, looking at more yin practice, so holding of postures, lengthening of tissues, um, and then as we're in season, more maintenance. So they might not know that I'm complementing it to, to some of the seasons, although they'll be like, well, this is a perfect adjunct to my training that my coach has given me or that I'm doing. Uh, but I try to take a good read of what it is the community needs so that we can adapt the classes for those types of needs. Uh, and so some of this is coming into your um, special training, the yoga medicine. And I guess that would take the shape of different breathing exercises. If you have a bunch of stressed out fight or flight triathletes walking in there, hyped up, uh, you're just kind of reading the room more so than just going through uh, poses, sequences. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, as with any generalized class, students start, we start to develop a connection with teacher and student and people start to bring up some of their biggest issues. And I try to incorporate it into the classes because it is their practice. I'm here to serve them. And breathing is definitely a, a huge part of it. Uh, I'm a big advocate of understanding how our nervous system responds, because I think that there's so much within the, the sports and athlete community around what nutrition do I take and what fitness regimen do I take that we forget how powerful our breath is and how powerful our thoughts are and how that affects our nervous system. And ultimately that's going to impact our sleep, our training, our health, our immune system, and our ability to perform. I'm curious about one thing, being a long time endurance athlete, triathlete for nine years and 
was trying to integrate yoga all that time. I'd go occasionally to a great class in Los Angeles and, um, you know, continue to uh, practice at home myself. I'm not a serious practitioner, uh, but I messed up my knee doing the pigeon stretch and it was the worst injury I've had in years. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of reflecting like I'm doing this straight ahead pounding sport where I'm running and now high jumping. Um, does that jibe with a lot of the yoga stretches where you're putting your joints in an unfamiliar position for a, an explosive impact sport or a repetitive trauma sport? And, you know, what's a way that we can use yoga to, first of all, not get injured like an idiot like me. And second <laughs> of all, you know, maybe improve performance, even though these things are seemingly, um, you know, contradictory. I think an important aspect of of, of yoga, of getting into anything that we're creating as, as an adjunct to our specialty in our sports, our performance training is understanding the body as a whole. So many times people hear yoga is good for me as an endurance athlete. So they go to a generalized class and then your experience tends to be a more common experience where they get injured because that class isn't designed specifically to counterbalance the movements that you're talking about, right? This repetitive forward, backward motion that's happening in the body. So these lateral positions or these spiral positions that are happening in the body are not something, you know, a little spiraling through high jump, right? Like you got to be able to arch <laughs> and be able to snap back in it. Um, but understanding fascia, so fascia is something that I think many people only understand on the level of like myofascial release, foam rolling, like almost masochistic mashing of the, of the tissues, but really understanding that our fascia encases everything, every part of our body. And that these lateral movements, even though it doesn't seem like the pigeon pose, which is going to rotate that knee outward is going to affect this lateral position. There are, um, there have been terms like myofascial slings. You can see that the outside of the leg or the inside of the leg are intrinsically connected to each other through fascia. And that if we are so tight on one end, it's going to pull on the other side. So I usually use the example, if you, if you have a t-shirt, just balling up, twisting the t-shirt around your shoulder and see how it pulls your shoulder down, that's going to affect your, affect your entire posture. And so Getting into these positions, it's helpful to find teachers. That's part of the reason I really like yoga medicine is you can actually look on yoga medicine's website and see teachers who specialize in very specific areas. So it can say yoga for athletes or shoulder or lower extremities at the orthopedic module level. And understanding that is important for the student when asking teachers good questions. Like, I'm a triathlete. And if they're like, I don't do any sports, all I do is yoga. Do you know a teacher who does specialize in endurance athletes so that I can focus on the counterbalance pieces? And for example, pigeon wouldn't be my first place to put someone in because it is, <laughs> because honestly, even experienced practitioners, and I use that term quote unquote experienced, someone who keeps showing up and it's a part of their daily practice still do wrong. Right. And I don't like to use right or wrong, but anatomically put themselves in compromising position. So someone brand new who's like, this is supposed to be really helpful, can injure themselves really badly. And especially in the knee, if you if you try to parallel the front of your shin too much with the front of your mat, for some people that causes extreme knee pain and most commonly runners, the IT band, the TFL, the, the glute med and maximus, the 
the low back, the erectors are so tight from running and especially again, running, jumping these positions that when I externally rotate that, that's a lot of force on it. So there are, there are more um, subtle ways to get into those tissues that aren't, that are going to allow you to breathe into it and have a good quality of breath that's going to nourish and um, allow the tissues to soften and soften in a way that they're able to be mobilized and become more elastic rather than just being this brunt force that <laughs> that ends up breaking us. <laughs> yeah, this was uh, Brad's backyard yoga class, by the way. So it was not with any uh, professional guidance, but um, you know, I've been doing this stuff for a long time, but uh, getting older too, and I guess less, uh, you know, less flexible or whatever, and trying to do my same old uh, impressive pigeon stretch where my my chest is all the way over my over my knee. So it, that's a good explanation. I appreciate that. And I was I made that little joke before about the high strung triathletes, but I thought the best value that I got from the yoga classes back when I was training full time was the ability to get my body into that relaxed state. And by the end, you know, they'd let us uh, uh, lay there in, what's the, pr- the, the prone? Shavasana. Shavasana? Yeah. Yeah, just, you know, lay there and I'd find myself asleep for a half an hour and just waking up and feeling more relaxed than I had the entire week because the training volume was so high. I was never really capable of bringing myself down into that state. So re- despite, I mean, uh, regardless of whatever stretches we did, just, just getting that, uh, that sensation, same with the massage, I think you get put into that parasympathetic state, parasympathetic state really quickly. So uh, anyway, making the, the circle on that. And I also would like to know the, the way to transform personal struggles into personal superpowers. And you have a backstory that I guess inspired the book and that you're, you're coming to the table with this story and how, you know, you've, you've become a more resilient person uh, from your struggles and, and done something good about them. Yeah. So struggle guru, um, struggle guru addresses our autobiography influencing our biology right? So the stories we tell ourselves are going to influence the way that we breathe, we think, we move, we connect. And really from a neurological standpoint, um, there are many scientists and doctors who now look at what they call the the default mode network in the brain. So it's around the midline of the brain. Uh, We won't get into the specifics of that, but we'll say midline of the brain. And our, our default neurologically is narrative, is personal narrative. So we go back to storytelling. We're daydreaming. How many different stories have we told ourselves of possible outcomes for anything, right? That never came true. And so being able to recall memories, they use a term called autobiographical reasoning. And autobiographical reasoning, if somebody asked you about an experience in your life, maybe it was an event from a sporting perspective or just any experience in our life, we don't just go back to the memory itself autobiographical reasoning tries to extract the meaning and the value of that experience. Like that's how our brain wants to light up and really work. And so struggle guru is asking ourselves to look at struggle, look at struggle specifically as the narrative, what struggles we have in our life and what are the values and meanings that we're extracting from that? And how is it then impacting the way that we experience our life moving forward? Ooh. That's pretty heavy. I love that. <laughs> it, it reminds me of you know many other uh, popular works like Bruce Lipton's Biology of Belief, where you receive this childhood programming 
mostly between the ages of zero through seven, because that's when we are the sponge and able to absorb all the all these messaging and form our self identity, and then we kind of operate from that position for the rest of our lives, sort of an unconscious pattern. And I think what you're conveying, I'm, I'm thinking back to uh, the the old time athletes, and everyone's got their story uh, carried forward to present day. And you know, I, I could have made the pros, but I messed up my shoulder, and the coach kind of uh, favored the other guy, even though I was better. And th- the story comes out anytime uh, an old jock talks about sports, and right. just in general, like anything where you're relaying a a past memory in a negative manner or a complaining manner, or a blaming manner, kind of says a lot about maybe how you're operating with things that happen uh, on a day-to-day basis. And when you went to the grocery store, the person cut in front of you, and everything's you know kind of, kind of a victim story that you see in a, in a pattern. Or I don't know, what's another example of a, a self-aggrandizing uh, narcissist type of position where uh, you were the best at everything and uh, no one can ever top, you know, your story that you're telling today from 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And if you're watching on YouTube, Kirsten's nodding her head and smiling. So I guess I'm, I guess I'm feeling your, your message here and I'd love to go even deeper. Yeah. And well, you know, it's, here's the, the bigger thing is struggle is so often associated with something negative, right? Like people will say like, I struggled. So when I have the title struggle guru, people are like, okay, so you're the master of struggle. I'm like, <laughs> must not, be a triathlete. Not, right, exactly. I'm like, talk to any endurance athlete and they'll, they'll feel pretty close to this connection. Um, but really, you know, guru from, from a yoga perspective is a highly revered master. And I believe that all of us possess mastery within ourselves. But in order to unlock that mastery, we have to look at struggle. And struggle isn't a bad word. Struggle isn't a bad thing. In fact, in the book, I convey that struggle is your ally. Struggle is your teacher. Struggle is here to support you. And the problem is we have such stark binary systems, right? Like there's light and dark, good and bad, success or failure. But what we don't understand, maybe more from like a Chinese medicine principle of yin and yang, that there's the little symbol that goes down the center of them is there's harmony. They are always together. They are interconnected. So on the other end, tethered to one another, so tethered to success is always failure. They are not separate. They're connected. And we can move back and forth across this, this line. I think of it sort of like the, the telephone lines, like streaming across, like this conduit moving back and forth, that we can always move back and forth between it. And we need to move back and forth between it in order to grow and evolve as human beings right? Like that's what we need to get stronger. If, if you've watched someone who's won a lot of races in their life and never lost, but you watch <laughs> them up against an athlete who has lost many times, there is a much different mindset, resiliency, and resolve in their training and in their ability to compete and perform and just have overall happiness and joy in the process. There is a vast difference between the person who always wins. The only thing they see is the outcome. The person who has struggled, who has lost and who has failed, values success, but also values the failure because it allows them to grow so exponentially. I mean, it's similar to someone who maybe has had everything handed to them growing up and they've never had to want versus hearing the story of someone who had to struggle through 
a difficult childhood, didn't have money, didn't have the education, but still was able to become resilient. Why do these two people differ? And the difference is one has embraced struggle. One has embraced it as their friend and their ally and has used it as the ladder to climb up. And the other stood, stood around midpoint or even at the top of the first mountain, but has no idea how to get off that mountain to the next one. And they're just stuck. They're stuck in that space. This is exactly what Tom Brady related on a recent podcast, the greatest quarterback, right, with the Super Bowl rings and everything. Uh, but if people are familiar with his interesting backstory, is that he was never the favored guy. He didn't even play on the varsity until 11th grade or something, and he wasn't the starting quarterback. He had to battle, and then finally they gave him a chance, and of course he excelled. But then when he went to Michigan, I believe when he got there, he was like seventh string, was the famous story goes. And so he was always wired for competition because nothing was ever handed to him. And he was in a realm, especially when he got to the pros, uh, most of these quarterbacks were the chosen ones since they were seven years old and threw the ball further than anyone else. And so he stated that he was much better at competing and bringing it on and just going for it rather than operating from that position of fear and anxiety that you're going to lose what you've always had in your life because you were always the chosen one all the way through. And it was a great insight that, um, you know, I think boy, it's really nice to, to reflect upon that, especially here in the age of the helicopter parent where uh, the prevailing parenting style is to try to give and hand your kid and set your kid up for uh, quote-unquote success every step of the way to the point where I guess they're calling them the snowplow parent too. I like that uh, uh, <laughs> term as well, where you're just clearing the way and making it smooth and easy so they never struggle or suffer. Um, do you know Roger Bannister, the, the first person to break four minutes in the mile? Mm -hmm. And he, he's passed now, but he had a great career in medicine and was incredible, uh, incredibly uh, philosophical. These works that he wrote when he was a young man, he wrote these uh, books about running and training, and uh, they were amazing, really. But he, he has some great quotes, and one of them is, struggle gives meaning and richness to life. And he was talking about the struggle to break the four-minute mile or be the best he could be in his academic career. Uh, but I think we kind of misinterpret that now. And I see people, now I'm kind of teeing you up for sort of a, a question after my, my long rant here. But um, I think we misinterpret that and we put ourselves into a path of struggle because we're going about it the wrong way and we're too disorganized at our work desk and it's full of paper and we're struggling to get through the day and get through our email inbox uh, due to hyperconnectivity, distractibility. So I'd, I'd love for you to comment on like setting yourself up for a healthy, positive struggle where you're trying to get better at your athletic endeavor is a simple idea versus just struggling through the day because your communication skills suck and you're in a negative uh, energy space and what have you. So one of the tools that I use in the book is discussing our personal compass. I think that direction, right? Like direction in our life is important. You can't, you can't get anywhere unless you know where exactly you are starting, right? So our compass is, is very, very important. And in the book I discuss, North is, is our true self, right? Our essence, our being. And that is anchored to our Southern point. Again, these are tied. They're not separate to our spiritual belief, which again, you don't have to believe in God. I do, but 
that is just your strong belief system. We all have belief systems and that anchors the direction in which we can move. And if you don't like who you are, you might want to look at what your belief system and structure is. Even in sport, you may have followed and believed in these coaches and these training styles and it keeps sending you askew. And so if you don't look at that belief structure, you're always going to be slightly askew. And so your North is always going to be just off and you're always just missing the mark of what you're trying to attain. Um, which brings our Eastern and Western points. The Eastern point is experiences. Our, the coaches that we, we work with, the type of education that we take in, the training plans, the work that we're putting in, and that's directly going to correlate to our Western point, which is our wisdom. What do we extract from those experiences? And how does that wisdom then, again, affect our whole compass? So if we can look at who we are, who we wanna be, and, and you know, again, we're using the athlete as the, the mold here, if you want to look at who, what type of athlete you want to be as your true north, if that's not the athlete you want to be, you need to look at your experiences. You need to look at the wisdom you're extracting from it and the belief system and the structure that is creating it. And if we don't like it, we can adjust the compass. That's the great news is you can adjust it. And I find that the biggest struggle for athletes in this is we, we go with the fake it till you make it mentality, Right or you find someone in the community that you idolize and you admire as an athlete and you read up on their training program because they wrote a book or they offer it online. And you think that if you follow the way of this person that you will be that person, right? But again, we don't know all of the struggles and all of the storylines that led this person to be here. That training plan is one of millions of components that made them the athlete that they are. And so what that does is it turns your compass one degree off of north. Now, if I set a compass and I'm and I, it's one degree off north and I'm in my house and I'm trying to go from my kitchen to the living room, I might end up on the couch instead of over at the coffee table. But if I set that one degree, it's one degree off and I'm doing a, we'll take an athlete from high school through pro sports, right? Like pro career. If they're one degree off, they may not end up in the pro sports. They may miss it. And it may be the shoulder injury or the the knee injury, and that those injuries came as a result of following the plan, following the path that was one degree off of what was true to them. You have to be your own advocate. And that requires some self-reflection. And that's what I love in yoga is this ability to draw in and really ask difficult questions of ourselves. Because oftentimes I feel like people don't like endurance sports or yoga for similar reasons. You're alone with your every thought. (laughs) Every good, bad, and in between, it comes up. You have high moments where you're like, I'm invincible down to I am a piece of crap. And why am I doing this? This is miserable. And we have to learn to navigate that. And I think that scares people sometimes, which is why I see people listen to music or I'll have students in yoga classes who rely on music to motivate their practice. We're trying to deafen ourselves to the very compass that is trying to set you forward. Struggle is trying to help you. It's trying to move you forward. So the compass is the tool that I usually bring people back to because there are a lot of questions we can ask even within that. Is the compass uh, an analogy or is this somehow connected to energy meridians when you're talking about, repeat the, um, the directions, the North is the true self, the West is the wisdom. Uh, the East south is our direction. experiences. Oh, Eastern oh, is East? our experience. Yep. Hey, guess what? We can remember those because right. e, e stands for experiences. W stands for wisdom. Right. And Southern is our spiritual compass or our belief system. Uh-huh. Right. So, yes. Um, is this you, uh, your, your genius creation that's uh, coming up with for the book? Or is this do, uh, relating to anything in the body, the energy meridians? 
So it is, I mean, it is, it is my tool that I have created over years of experience with, with athletes. Um, I discuss another tool in there where for athletes specifically that I call the pet. <laughs> so that's the acronym for it where, because pets are something that we can tame and we, we can love and we can nurture. And so it looks, looks at past experiences. It looks at our education and it looks at our training modules. Like how do we train? How do we adapt? And understanding past experiences and stories that are going to affect me as a coach to be able to train you. You know, it's very different to have the very privileged athlete versus the, the one who's always fought. And I have coached both in my life. And I will take the one who has fought over the privileged every day because there's more open-mindedness. There's more, there's more willingness to grow and move and be okay with failing and allow me to help them explore this and know that it is a journey versus the very privileged is like, I want the one that yields the highest result and I want it now. I, do, like, I don't want to go through all the crap just give me what the answer is. And it's like, that's, it's not going to, to help. So it is from my experiences, coaching, teaching and yoga. Um, you know, I worked in exercise physiology and exercise science at Kent State University. I taught there. So seeing my students and how they adapted to become future teachers and coaches, has helped me see what this compass really uh, embodies in order for change and struggle. So are you coaching? Tell, tell me about your coaching services now. Are you working mostly with athletes and how does it, it, it sounds extremely different from the traditional uh, athletic coach, especially in the endurance scene where they're just spitting out workouts and uh, not, not digging anywhere near this level of depth to the, the, the mindset and what the person's bringing to the table. Yeah. So, you know, my, my career, I work kind of on a scale of things. Yes. I do coach a lot of athletes online. So most of them are triathletes. Um, Ironman athletes, sprint triathlons, as well as marathons, ultra marathons, um, but really focuses more on the endurance side. I do have people who come to me who desire to lose weight, but that was really more of my beginning of my career and is just not something I necessarily want, want to get into. Uh, but the training style that I offer for my athletes that I do coach uh, is called OM training. So OM, just like <laughs> the chant, O-M. So it stands for observe the mind, move the body. So what I use is a priming series, an AM and a PM. So AM practices are active mindset. So sometimes they are physical, sometimes they are mental challenges that work for my athletes. And then the PM is a passive mindset, which is designed to help reset the nervous system so that the body can actually metabolize the trainings that we've created in the day and yield the best results for strong immune system, strong mind-body connection, and really overall the healthiest athlete that, that I can help create. That's important to me. Um, certainly I have people are like, no, I just like, just give me how many miles I need to run and do it. And I will gladly send them off to other coaches that I know who are brilliant and that's their teaching style. But over the years, it's just so much more important for me to have my help my athletes see that we can prime the mind and then we can also release the mind. And this is going to help us not just in our sport, but see the world beyond our sport and how that translates into our everyday life and choices. Well, you're going to have a, um, an attrition funnel for the athletes that, that start out and uh, aren't open to it and, and the ones that make it through and have this whole other perspective that you can bring to um, what's, what's seemingly kind of a, a simple, straightforward endeavor like running an ultra marathon. It's not like being a golfer and learning all the skills and hitting the different shots. It's like, okay, you got to get from here to there and it's 50 miles away. Um, but I felt like there was a lot of opportunity for growth 
for personal growth through uh, competing in these triathlon challenges. Uh, but they ha- you had to get past this uh, this curtain, uh, the, the curtain of Oz, and, and kind of look at these things. And I think in my case, um, the reflections and the the personal growth came uh, almost entirely from from struggling. And, you know, kind of trying to recalibrate and saying, wait a second, I'm, I'm training as hard as I can. I'm out there all day long. I'm sleeping for half of my life. And this guy's still in front of me. Uh, what's, what's, what's my problem? And then, you know, some certain things kind of come to light that maybe my mindset isn't all, all together. Obviously, you're saying it is my compass was off direction. And that's exactly what, uh, what I can reference to is that, yeah, I was trying to, keep up with someone else because I thought that would be the way to beat them on the race course or um, bringing in these, um, you know, these ego frailties and things that were affecting my decision-making because I was impatient and I wanted to, you know, go from point A to point B really quickly without putting in the work or, or, you know, some of the hard work is resting and holding yourself back instead of just flooring the gas pedal all the time. And those are the awakenings that, boy, those, those can really lead to breakthroughs. But Sometimes I don't know if you can uh, comment on this. The the personality type that's attracted to an extreme athletic challenge like that uh, might not be wired for that openness to to uh, participate in the in the ohm the ohm strategy rather than the flooring the gas pedal strategy. And I agree. I mean, I've certainly had people who are like, "No, I I can't do that." Well, you're not ready, and that and I'm never going to force somebody into it. Um, but I often will send them to countless videos. Look at, look at Olympians, look at your greatest athletes in sports. They run their own race. They play their own sport. They are aware. We need awareness of our fields, right? Like we need to know who our competition is, but that does not change who we are as an athlete, right? I can't change the athlete I am to meet them, meet their standards. I'm not here to meet their expectations. I'm here to exceed my own expectations. So this is where we look at, like for me, the form and the formless. So the form is this body, this vessel. The formless is our energy. And our energy always has the capacity to push the boundaries of the physical. But you need to know how to harness the boundaries of the formless in order to alter the form, to change the physical body. And it's been studied in terms of like flow state. There's a book, I think it's called um, Finding Superman or something close to it. But they looked at cliff divers, surfers, like flow state, time starts to slow down. You're hyper-focused. You don't feel pain. Like you, you are almost hovering outside of yourself and within yourself simultaneously. And I have experienced it as an athlete and as a coach and my athletes have experienced it. And it is this is a next level that many people want to attain. And so they think that it's just like a light switch. You do it once and we got it. Um, but it's not, it's this concentration and this focus on being centered on your training. And so when people come to me, I'm just very honest that if you are really adamant about becoming the best athlete that you can be, then I can offer trainings that are going to help you expand that, but you have to be willing to get into really uncomfortable situations. And they're like, well, yeah, I, I, I can do the mile repeats that I could do that. I'm like, but could you sit in stillness for 30 minutes and do nothing? And I'm not talking about medica- meditation. I'm talking just sit for 30 minutes and do nothing. Talk to no one, not on your phone, no music, no nothing, just sit somewhere. And they're like, uh, <laughs> no. 
I'm like, that's the level of commitment that I'm looking for from my athletes. I want you to be able to commit to something so outside of the realm of your understanding that it really draws you in home and you are able to get to this next level that, that most people don't experience. Maybe we could combine Kirsten's assignment with Kelly Starrett, you know, Kelly Starrett becoming yes. a supple leopard, the race state. He wants people to do the 15 minute squat test. This is for an entirely different reason than your 30 minutes, but maybe I could count toward my 30 minute challenge if I can just hold that deep squat position and make sure that my, my glutes are, uh, are well adapted and all that. But that's a, that's a good one. I was talking about the funnel. So that would be the first one sit still for 30 minutes and report back. And right. um, this is no joke either, because I had to learn the hard way from, you know, pushing myself to the very extremes and, and traveling all over the world and, you know, getting, getting tired and, and broken down and burnt out and wondering, you know, why I was so unlucky and telling that victim story. And boy, if, um, if, if the mind can open to, uh, you know, other, other possibilities and other realms that these, these other things are, are really important. Um, that's when you can kind of, if you can sit still for 30 minutes, I guarantee that's going to help your, your overall training patterns and decision-making, especially. Absolutely. Well, and look at, um, for example, look at Ryan Hall, Ryan Hall was as a marathoner was broken all the time. And he was considered at one point, like one of the best male marathon, American marathon runners ever. And I was like, how he barely finishes. Right. And no knock on Ryan Hall if he stumbles across this. Like, <laughs> I am not you. But you look at him now in ultra races. First of all, look at his physique transition. In his marathons, he looked like the traditional marathoner, right, that we envision our minds, like very lanky, very skinny. Now, I mean, he's got like an eight-pack and biceps and delts for days. Like, that's a person whose compass was just a little, he's going further and running faster than ever before without breaking down. That's where his compass with, he was letting all these other training methodologies and his coach at one point was like, you just need more mileage. You just need more mileage. That man did not need more mileage. <laughs> that man needed to stop. <laughs> he needed rest. He needed to slow down. He needed to change his approach. Um, it's, it's hard. It's hard to do those things. It's, it's easy to look at the physical that seem really glamorous because we're okay with lifting weights and conditioning. We're okay with doing the repeats or going out on uh, doing the swim workouts or the bike for long periods of time. But to sit with yourself for 30 minutes, it feels impossible. And they're, they're like, well, how does that translate into me being a better Ironman athlete? Everything, everything. Cause you're going to be with yourself an entire day. <laughs> watch, watch the uh, karate kid. Now there's a, a remake on, on Netflix called Cobra Kai and yes. it's in the San Fernando Valley. So I'm, I'm giving it a watch, even though it's a little cheesy, but you know, the original movie where uh, Ralph Macchio was asking his, his mentor, what does this have to do with karate when I'm waxing all your cars for you? Uh, so I'm thinking of that connection right there. Absolutely. Um, and you know, being able to um, turn the faucet on and off is like the biggest uh, skill set requirement for the triathlete. So uh, I like that sitting still challenge. I don't. I don't think I could have. I don't think I could have done it myself. I would have. Would have made up some complaint or excuse. But um, tell me about your uh, athletic participation. You said you're you're endurance athlete yourself, or were, and that's kind of informing your coaching too. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been a runner. As long as soon as my legs could start moving, my father was was an amazing runner. Um, he was alive during the time of the four four minute mile. Um, broke the four minute mile shortly after the four minute mile had wow. been broken, and he still holds the school record in New Jersey, um, 
which is amazing. But he would get up every day and he'd run 10 miles before he went to work and he'd run 10 miles after work and he'd bike and swim and play tennis and do all kinds of things. So he was very active. Um, and I wanted to be just like him. So I started running. I would try to keep up with him. My mom's like, that's great. I'm gonna have to pick you up on a bike, ride me back home. Um, and then at seven years old, I lost my father. Suddenly he, he had a heart attack. He shared a room with his brother who had rheumatic fever and no one ever tested him because my father was an athlete. And over years it ended up disintegrating his heart. So unfortunately all of these extra sports did, did nothing to help him. Um, but it, I kind of, every time then I would lace up, I felt like I was running with him and he was always with me. But in terms of compass being just one degree off, my worst time in athletics was I was always trying to run for him. And it was always about, oh, my dad would be so proud because everybody would tell me that. And so my best times in high school and even college, I, I ran in college as well, were nothing compared to what I could actually run now because I started running for myself now versus for the coach and for what everyone was expecting of me instead of what I wanted for myself or what I was curious about. This childlike curiosity that started me in running and I really did love as a child prior to losing my father, I lost it when I lost him. And it was like that piece got buried in the ground with him and it took what felt like a lifetime to resurface that. And so that experience, you know, carried forward. I. I've done all kinds of races. I've done ultras. I've done triathlons. I, I, I love endurance sports. I believe that it's in my blood more than just because of my father. I love the ability to sit with my struggle and see what comes up. And that may make me crazy, but I think there are millions of people who follow me because they're all out there running and doing these events as well. I think they're especially ultras. Like I love being on the trails and just seeing the limits that I can push my body to. And not for the sake of like, how much can I torture myself, but what is my yeah. actual limit and, and how do I expand that? So that's been my experience. And that's part of what I advocate for my athletes is let this race, you know, we can lead up to this big race that you're looking at, but let these other races be experiments to fail miserably in such a way that you're like, oh my gosh, I never thought I could do it. And you know what? I held it longer than I thought I did, but I didn't go the full distance. Great. Now you learned a new limit. It, like a DNF is not the end of the world. It is actually a great lesson and teacher. So I think that that's part of what I enjoy with my athletes is that they embrace this as well, that they embrace that struggle and, and see its power, not just on the race course, but also in their lives. They're like, I'm okay with starting my own business and it failed, but I learned so much from it. And I'm building this new one and I'm going from that. So important, <laughs> <Great attitude>. important <laughs> lessons. <laughs> yeah. I think you're describing what I like to call cultivating a pure motivation for training and competing and doing it for the pure love and for the exploration of your limits. And in contrast, when you're uh, serving to outside voices and outside measuring and judgments, even if it's well-meaning, like, oh, your father would be so proud of you. I mean, you can't get more well-meaning than that, but it's still taking the, um, you know, the, the onus outside of yourself and you're answering to, you know, outside forces. And I think um, I'm recalling, you know, as a professional, when the stakes were seemingly high and there was a lot of attention paid to us 
it's really easy to go outside of yourself and get disconnected from that pure motivation and want to excel so that you knew that you might get your picture in the magazine or you get more uh, income from sponsors and things like that. And again, that really messes up your decision-making and it throws your compass off because you're now motivated by uh, superficial things rather than you know what's in your heart and deciding which races to go to and how fast to go out at the start, all these kind of things. You see people making the same mistakes over and over at whatever level. I'm thinking of the elite level and, and guys that had uh, you know, a, a certain uh, behavior or personality type that would play out in uh, you know, unsatisfactory race results and everyone would laugh and smirk uh, looking at these patterns repeated. Uh, but we all have to face that and, and you know, try, to, try to escape from... Uh, what was what was the term? You did the autobiographical, um, autobiographical. Reasoning. What did you call the it? Autobiographical reasoning. Yeah, the autobiographical reasoning. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, well, there's actually a chapter in the book. It's called "I Finished the Race. Now Where Is My Medal?" <laughs> and the point of the chapter actually is, what would happen if the only person who knew that you completed the race, did the event, achieved the PR was you, and you could share it with no one. So it's not just like that there's no event like we're experiencing right now. Many events aren't existing, but that there's nothing except intrinsically what has happened. How many people would participate in these events? Not very many. I mean, and, and I have plenty of people are like, no, no, I would. No, you wouldn't. I know you wouldn't because I'm, I'm looking at athletes right now who are upset that the race went virtual and well, now I can't go against this competition. No, it's because again, they've taken it outside of themselves. It's about the medal. It's about the accolades. It's about the notoriety and the people truly that you've seen. I mean, and there are big personalities in every sport, but truly some of the greatest athletes that you see are like, yes, like this, this medal, this magazine cover is a byproduct of me following my compass and, and intrinsically looking at what I wanted to achieve in my life or in my sport. And Yes, these are great, but this isn't everything. Because if tomorrow I injure myself, I have invested in the process. I remind my athletes this all the time, invest in the process. Because if the sport goes away or the ability to do the sport goes away, you are still left with the lessons of that process. And that will make you an incredible human being that can adapt in any situation. And that is what we need. That's how we evolve as humans. If we don't evolve, we die right? Like we have to continue to evolve. So it might feel like dying in the moment when we lose that, but we can shift and change because our mindset has become so much more elastic and pliable that we can mold it and shape it into whatever we need when we need it most. And I guess in your case, you relate that you had to deal with a, a, a cancer battle uh, using these skills. And so tell us about that and how that kind of um, uh, frames some of the content in the book and your approach as a coach. I think anytime we are met with uncertainty in our mortality, we are always forced to adapt. And again, some of the people that I've studied under or I've learned under are great mentors or teachers in any realm. It doesn't just have to be in sports or, or yoga. Often have had some sort of experience with this great struggle physically, right? So the physical body failing us in some capacity and it was actually through cancer that I was first introduced to yoga. There was a, a patient who has since passed who helped me understand that even though my physical body was failing, that my spiritual, mental consciousness was still very much vibrant 
And if I could continue to cultivate that, that I could influence the physical body, which is why I discussed before the form and the formless, that that energy could start to shift the, the physical form, the body and the vessel. And that if I stepped back from this concept of fighting, and I, and I sometimes have difficulty um, with, you know, fight for a cure and we're fighting this and we're mm. fighting this. Okay, let's, let's use a little basic physics. Energy is neither created nor destroyed. It is only transferred. So if I have to keep telling myself, fight, 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 mentally, I, I am utilizing very valuable energy mentally that is not going to the physical body that needs to heal. And so if I have to, and really what those campaigns and slogans, and I've worked for many nonprofits in, in, in cancer, are trying to say is that's really for the family. It's for the caregivers because there isn't a patient in the world really who's just like, okay, well, yay for this. I want to die. (laughs) I'm not saying we don't have moments like that. I've certainly had moments like that where I wanted to throw the towel in, but generally that isn't the the mentality of, of the patient. So if I have to try and continue to fight to make you as my caregiver feel better, it's really actually hurting. And I'm not trying to take, I don't want caregivers to walk away listening to this like, wow, what guilt? No, it's, it's not about that. I'm focusing right now on, on the survivorship and the survivorship comes from shifting my energy from having to fight the energy within me to being one with it. Just like there are no opposites. Cancer is, is difficult because it is not separate of me. It is me. The cancer cell is not separate of my cell. It is in my cell. It is a part of me. Just like light and dark are tethered together, so is cancer and my healthy cells. And the only way in which science and medicine has been able to find a way to cure it is to kill all of you. So you must surrender all of yourself in order to rebuild yourself. Out of ashes rises the phoenix, right? (laughs) So in this process, through meditation and yoga, I started to see that if I if I transferred the energy into this healing space and vibrancy, that radiation could work, chemo could work. I could let the the medicine do the work that it needed to do. And this is part of the reason when you look at survivorship, people who have a strong support system, who have a more positive outlook, who stay active, all of these things are, are really based around energy, right? The energy is shifted into allowing that body to heal. And the same thing for an athlete, right? If I'm always pushing, 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 if I'm always fighting, I can never heal. I can never give my body time to do what it needs because it requires a great deal of mental energy to be so focused on the sport and physical. And at some point, both of them just drop out of the equation. They can't go any further. They've reached their limit. Where if you just pull back, you rein it in a little bit and say, I'm going to let my mind become vibrant in the way that I can strengthen it in this struggle, then my body is going to be carried with it. It will transfer because they are tethered to each other. That's that interconnectedness. So through my my experience through cancer, through working with cancer patients and athletes, I always remind people, even as I talk to young students at schools, from elementary up to universities, you don't have to experience a life or death situation in order to recognize the power of the mind, the power of the body. But it is 100% within your grasp to change it because we're all given the same minutes in the day. We all have the same bank account filled with the same hours that goes to zero at the end of the day. And we can choose to use it to benefit us, to grow, to change, 
or we can deplete ourselves spending so much money on all these external things that are pulling us every direction and spinning our compass into circles, looking like there is no gravitational pull to it whatsoever. And we're just spinning out, spiraling out. We're so far away from ourselves, And so in that respect, I'm grateful that it allowed me to feel this groundedness and connection that I can share with my athletes and share with others so that they, they can do the same for themselves. Whew, that's very well said, Kirsten. Very nice. I, I think that's a beautiful summary. Um, you know, it is a sensitive topic. I, I see the bumper stickers or what have you that say fuck cancer. And it's kind of like, well, that's a little bit of a negative uh, disposition there to, to start with something that, uh, like you described so beautifully, uh, is, is much more nuanced than just putting up your, your hands into the fighting position. Um, but you you did a great job uh, going out of your way not to offend anybody who's who's touched by you know the the, the tragic uh, battle and the and the ordeal. Um, but I, I love that attitude of you know uh, submitting to uh, the the challenge, the struggle, and, and and doing your best. And that's all we can do every day. So yeah, I think you definitely you you say you're a motivational speaker, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You you got a gift for this. I, I love that 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 message. It's very well said and. I think the listeners should all go pick up The Struggle Guru. Is it out now? And we can find it on Amazon and bookstores and everything? Absolutely. Yeah, you can find it on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. So all you have to do is look up Struggle Guru. It'll pop up all over the place. (laughs) Uh, And what about your website? We can learn more about your coaching services and so forth. Yeah, so kbwaters.com. Um, is a direct connection to me and will connect you to Aero Wellness, which is where I do a lot of my athlete coaching. So they're interconnected in there, but people can reach out for one-on-one coaching, um, whether it's through yoga, meditation, sport, um, and everything pretty much in between. Kirsten Beverly Waters. Thank you, everybody. Make sure every salad is dressed for success with Primal Kitchen dressings and marinades. Versatile, flavorful, and unique, use Primal Kitchen dressings to marinate meats, dunk veggies, and add complexity to your favorite salads. With keto-certified, certified paleo, and Whole30-approved options, finding your salad soulmate is a snap. Choose from updated classics like ranch, Caesar, Italian, balsamic, honey mustard, or Greek. Or get adventurous with aromatic sesame ginger, zesty cilantro lime, creamy vegan ranch, or tangy lemon turmeric. Avocado oil-based, these dressings, vinaigrettes, and marinades are an easy, primal-approved way to upgrade any dish. So use the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT to take 20% off your purchase at checkout.